What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Final session before the holiday, but a busy one for news. Sam Altman back at OpenAI. Got a ceasefire in Gaza. Oil's down nearly 5% on news of this OPEC meeting delay. Tenure got below 437. Our roadmap begins with AI. Sam Altman is heading back to a revamped OpenAI, while NVIDIA continues to ride the AI chip boom, while also tempering its China outlook. Plus, U.S. crude oil is tumbling below 75 bucks a barrel. This is OPEC delays its upcoming meeting. Talks reportedly hitting a snag over citing dissatisfaction with other members' oil production levels. And deer shares are under pressure. Sales worries linger as profit outlook disappoints. Let's begin with the Sam Altman OpenAI saga. Chad GPT's parent says it has reached an agreement in principle for Altman to return to the company as CEO with a new initial board consisting of former Salesforce co-CEO Brett Taylor as chair, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, and Quora CEO Adam D'Angelo. Microsoft's Satya Nadella says he's encouraged by the changes to the board. And after referencing his decision to join Microsoft in a post on X, Altman added, quote, with the new board and with Satya's support, I'm looking forward to returning to Open." AI and building on our strong partnership with Microsoft. Some reporting, uh, guys, that uh, Altman has agreed to at least an internal investigation surrounding the circumstances that led to his initial exit. Still a lot of questions about that and to what degree this has uh, a blow to OpenAI that will last. It's not clear it's going to last anymore if, in fact, they keep the employees and go back to what they were focused on with the same person at the helm. Uh, obviously, Microsoft comes out looking pretty good. Nadella played this very well, uh, it would seem. I mean, either the prospect of Altman and Brockman joining Microsoft and hiring a lot of those employees who work with them at OpenAI, or I think what was the preferred scenario is the one yeah. in which uh, he goes back and things kind of go on the way they were with a different board, and that, I think, is the key here. Um, you had members of that board, you know, whose instincts were very different than Altman's. And that seems to have been where a lot of the conflict arose. Although, again, we still have not gotten any specifics in terms of what was done or not done that they felt uh, uh, was, uh, was particularly harmful to the company. As you take a look at the new members of the board, Sarah, I mean, yeah. those are more in the capitalist realm <laughs> of things than perhaps effective altruists. Uh, as a number of the other board members were. Can't fully explain Summers. Uh, like, I know he's not close to Sam Altman, is my understanding. So I'm not sure I've, where or how his name got on well, there. Well, he's the adult in the, in the room. You know, yeah. one of the foremost economists in the country was the former Treasury Secretary ran under Harvard. Bill Clinton, ran Harvard, also has, has been on boards before and, and has been a proponent of sorts of AI. Went back and looked at his tweets in the past. In April, he, he tweeted, more and more, I think ChatGPT is coming for the cognitive class, predicting that it'll change the way we work. And that is certainly an economic issue for 
OpenAI and ChatGPT to figure out. Um, he said it's coming for the financial traders, the doctors, the authors, and the editors. White-collar professionals likely to see more disruption than those who do manual labor. Uh, was the summer's view there on that. And then, of course, Brett Taylor, who was the chair, short short time, one-year chair of, of Twitter's board before it sold to Elon Musk and, of course, co-CEO with Mark Benioff of Salesforce, has also you know, been sort of front and center in, in these negotiations, as mm-hmm. has been reported. Larry Summers, I think, more of the surprise. And then the third one is the guy who was there before, the Right. Quora He's founder. the one remaining member of the previous board. Uh, and obviously, they still don't change the actual charter of the company. I mean, there's still the nonprofit entity and... You know, that's that's the key division. I mean, um, Altman, obviously, Carl seems much more focused on the commercial viability of the product and what they're doing and the ability to make money. Uh, they are capped. Investors are ultimately capped. Those that are brought in at various valuations at 100 times their money. And then there's sort of a waterfall that results in actually that multiple going down over time. But um, I'm not sure. You know, I'd heard last year he may have sold some stock. I haven't been able to confirm that, though. So. There's still a lot going on here that we don't know, uh, but what we do is this extraordinary saga, at least, has come to some sort of a conclusion, at least at this point. Of course, uh, rivals not standing still, Anthropic, uh, Google coming out with competing products, and the question will be whether or not people will have second thoughts about committing exclusively to open AI as they might have in the past. I think it is a reminder that there all that there are a lot of options out there. It's not just ChatGPT. Anthropic has its own version. Salesforce is is pushing hard Mark Benioff to recruit uh, those talented engineers from OpenAI for his Einstein partnership. Microsoft obviously is going at it. Google and Meta. So there are and, other And chat Elon bots. Musk as I pointed out at yeah. XAI and whatever it's called. What is it Brog? Yeah, his new thing. So yeah. Larry Summers might be helpful on the regulatory front. You know, they're going to have to navigate Washington at some point. Um, This is an unregulated situation at this point when it comes to AI, and everyone thinks it's coming. The members of Congress are working on it. So I think there's uh, there's some logic there. That actually makes a lot of sense. You're right. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to NVIDIA now. It's related. It is related, of course. The boom uh, there largely is a result of uh, a generative AI and the fact that it's uh, taken over the operations so many data centers and you need NVIDIA chips to push them along. Take a look at the shares. Uh, They looked a little bit down. Now they're sort of, let's call it flat. This after the uh, chip maker did post quarterly results that were just way above street consensus. Sales more than tripling as, of course, as I said, it continues to ride. What is that AI boom? Overall guidance offsetting forecasts of a sales decline in China in the wake of U.S. rules that are curbing imports to that country. Here's what NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong had to say about AI on the earnings call. Generative AI era is in full steam and has created the need for a new type of data center, an AI factory, optimized for refining data and training and inference and generating AI. AI factory workloads are different and incremental to legacy data center workloads supporting IT tasks. AI factories run co-pilots and AI assistants, which are significant software TAM expansion and are driving significant new investment, expanding the $1 trillion traditional data center infrastructure install base and powering the AI industrial revolution. 
You know, you, not that long ago, of course, we talked about the cloud providers led by AWS, followed up by Azure and then Google Cloud, Oracle as well, and their needs in the data center were not insignificant, but this has changed everything in terms of running generative AI, the large language models that call for enormous amounts of computing power, and as you heard uh, Jensen Wong say, he calls them AI factories now, and the expansion to drive things such as Copilot, the Microsoft uh, product actually called Copilot and other AI assistants. They don't seem to see, Sarah, any diminution yeah. in, the, in the need for these chips, the highest end chips of which they basically completely control the market uh, into these data centers to drive these applications. No, and, and Wong said on the call, I absolutely believe data center can grow through 2025 when pushed on whether it's peaking or anything like that. I think the stock reaction the fact that it's flat on 206% revenue growth coming in better than expectations shows you how much good news has already been baked into this. But, but Carl, the analysts mostly are glowing on the back of this. Barclays, we see no let up in demand and remain confident in our checks that data center revenue is headed to $25 billion per quarter. Got two uh, targets with a seven handle out of B of A and Bernstein. They go to 700. Uh, Wells not far behind at 675. Jim did say uh, that the company can and will uh, prosper, in his words, without China. It's just easier with than without. And the company sort of made clear that these, this decline in China sales will be offset. Uh, but that's going to be definitely a headwind to take into account. Yeah, they warned on it for the next quarter. Didn't really have an impact on, on this quarter. To Jim's point, people knew that this was going to be a headwind. I think they, were, they quantified it a little bit more, right? 20 to 25 percent of the data center revenue comes from China. But they're looking at workarounds you know, of how to, how, to, how to be able to, I guess, sell these, these chips without violating the import controls uh, for, for China. I don't know how we feel about that from a national security point of view, but for NVIDIA investors, maybe some relief there. Yeah, I mean, they have to get approvals for everything they do in terms of what they're selling and work with the Commerce Department. Uh, Gina Romano's been very involved specifically in sort of what designs are and aren't applicable in terms of sales for the, for the Chinese. Uh, sticking with NVIDIA, we mentioned the target out of Wells. Our next guest is raising his target to 675 from 600 and reiterates an overweight. Cites, uh, quote, data center momentum, software monetization, and growth driven by the cloud and AI. Aaron Wakers, Wells Fargo Managing Director, joins us this morning. Uh, Aaron, happy Thanksgiving. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, uh, let's set aside the data center for a second, just focus on, uh, maybe it's the most important uh, element at the moment, and that is how do you think about the China headwind? Yeah, I, I think the China headwind is, obviously, you mentioned just a minute ago, right, 20 to 25 percent of data center revenue. They, they said it would be down significantly. I think the most important thing that they outlined, though, is they confirmed reports that they would have, quote, unquote, workarounds or products that fall below the, the processing performance restrictions that were put in place in this most recent round here over the next month, right? And so, you know, I think it's short-lived. I think they'll have products out that, that starts to really benefit or, or, you know, recover some of that China loss business as we look out into the April quarter and subsequently. Uh, and, and you mentioned, too, right, they are working with customers, they're working with the U.S. government. Uh, I, I think that short-lived impact uh, will, will start to lift as we look into the next fiscal year. Uh, some of the risks that you point out, uh, competition in the gaming space, obviously, uh, maybe some, uh, some supply uh, delays because of the third-party element there. How important are those? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the narrative on NVIDIA will continue to be dominated by the data center business. We think the gaming business has kind of returned back to normalization, right? They're talking about seasonality driven by notebooks uh, and the mobile market becoming a larger percentage. But I, I think this narrative will continue to shift towards the data center. 
and, and be driven by just the platform breadth, right? The, the, not just the leadership position and high-end GPUs, but networking is a huge business, right? This is 2.6 billion plus of quarterly revenue now. Uh, and then we've said, and, and we've publicly reiterated again, right, software monetization still at its early innings. What about competition? And we mentioned the, the tight partnership with Microsoft, but Microsoft is unveiling its own homegrown chips. AMD is coming up with these, you know, AI, generative AI targeted chips. Is that going to be a threat for NVIDIA's dominance as we wonder whether, you know, we've, we're seeing the best kind of results these days from NVIDIA? Yeah. Yeah, good, good question. I, I think definitely we have to continually assess the competitive landscape. Our opinion is that NVIDIA, you know, even as we see competition start to evolve, you know, this is still a company that we think is an 80, if not 90 percent plus market share player uh, in high end, you know, AI, you know, compute infrastructure. AMD will launch their product on December 6th. 6th. We think that they'll have a strong showing. Uh, obviously, Microsoft, the customer, we believe some other cloud opportunities exist. But we still think NVIDIA, given the full platform and, and full stack for us of this company, they will lead this market uh, for the foreseeable future is kind of where, where our opinion's at. And so for the stock, given your expectations, what's an appropriate multiple? Sort of just walk us back from, you know, your current price target and how you get there. Yeah, so I, I you know, first of all, the price target at 675, 33 times our out year uh, EPS number uh, at $20.43. So. You know, I think one important thing is that, you know, we needed to coalesce that 2025 expectation versus the range of what was from $16 of EPS all the way to 33. We think this multiple can sustain a, you know, mid-30 multiple. Uh, we think software monetization can support that. And put that in context, historically, over the last five years, the stock traded at about a median multiple of about 40 times. So we, we see 35 as a reasonable multiple on, on shares of NVIDIA. Not to tie this to NVIDIA, but the, the open AI uh, drama over, over the past uh, half a week, I guess, do you think that does anything to the trajectory of that innovation? I, you know, I, I don't know that <laughs> from an NVIDIA perspective it really changes, you know, much, much of anything. I mean, it obviously highlights the importance here, uh, the, the insertion of not just, you know, the infrastructure being put in place, but the competitive imperativeness of, of having an AI strategy. And so, I don't think it changes NVIDIA whatsoever. I do think as we move forward, we're going to go from a, a very significant emphasis on the training side of the compute uh, piece of AI to the inferencing side. And I definitely felt last night's call, uh, NVIDIA leaned a little bit more uh, uh, vocally in on the inferencing side, with, which we think becomes much more pervasive as we move into 24 and beyond. Uh, well, it's an important print. Uh, now that we got it under our belt, we'll see what the market does with it, Aaron. Have a great holiday. Thank you. Thank you, Harry Rakers over at Wells. Still to come, uh, oil, as we said, under some pressure this morning as OPEC delays its meeting, almost a 5% drop there. Take a look at the pre-market as we look for maybe light volume on this uh, day before Thanksgiving. We'll get to Baba and Deer and Nordstrom and Urban after a short break. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Let's talk energy, shall we? Crude oil is tumbling. You can see it there. It's below 75. The OPEC Plus meeting scheduled for Sunday. It's now delayed. So let's get over to Brian uh, and give us the details, the reasons behind perhaps what is going on here. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, David. And I'll be completely honest and transparent. I'm still trying to learn all those reasons and the meaning behind it because the news breaking about an hour ago, everybody was ready to go to Vienna on Sunday over the weekend. Now that meeting has been delayed to Thursday, November 30th, which, by the way, is the first day of the COP28 climate summit in the UAE. So that's kind of interesting on its own. Here's what we know. That OPEC meeting has been delayed. Oil is falling. Why is oil falling just on news of a delay? Well, it's because, as Energy Aspects and others are telling me this morning, and we're still learning as we go on, there is concern that the delay is being caused by perhaps OPEC or Saudi Arabia's inability to establish other countries to share some of the pain on their total output. The way OPEC works, I know it's a little bit weird, guys. Basically, all the members and the plus members, Russia and others, have agreed to output quotas. Those were set back in June. That was a very difficult and lengthy discussion to get countries to agree on certain levels. Then Saudi Arabia and Russia came in with their own 1 million and 300,000 barrel a day cuts, respectively. It looks like what's happening here is that Saudi Arabia is expected to extend its cuts perhaps deeper into 2024, but probably wants some of the other nations to share the pain. Energy Aspects telling me this morning, thank you by the way, that their data and research shows that it is primarily Nigeria, Angola, and Congo that are looking for more output. Nigeria in particular, a major global player, they want to put more oil guys on the market and... If the rest of OPEC or the Saudis are saying we need to all sort of hang together, then this is giving the market an indication that perhaps that very fraught tie-up is not what it was. And there's a little bit of market nervousness out there. I was going to ask, Brian, how unusual or typical it is to get this kind of split opinion in OPEC that would delay a decision like this. Uh, That's a great question, Sarah. I I think that, you know, obviously with with OPEC, these are all sovereign nations. They they, they come together. They've got a lot in common. They appear, you know, as a group. But at the same time, they're all looking out for perhaps their own nation's best interest at certain times. I'm not sure there's anything in some cases normal with OPEC. I mean, you go back decades (laughs) and some of these meetings lasted 17, 17 or 20 days in some cases. But the market is jumpy, Sarah, because... I think some countries, particularly as I referenced, Nigeria and others, are looking to add more oil to the market. But this is not just an OPEC story. This is Guyana. David knows that very well, adding a a huge amount of oil to the market. Brazil, nearby, kind of a similar field, adding more oil to the market. Iran, they've been out there adding more OPEC or oil to the market as well. So you got a world, guys, where there's more oil coming out from a lot of non-OPEC nations. And I'm looking at you, United States, as well, as we're at near or at record production. Oh, look at that. Perfect timing. And at the same time, demand, particularly in China, is not what people had hoped. 
Uh, not to mention this ceasefire, and we'll see what that does to the geopolitical dynamic. Uh, we expect it to last a few days here uh, as we get some hostages perhaps released. Uh, Brian, thanks. Uh, Brian Sullivan, we know you'll watch it closely today. As we return, uh, more movers to get to, including deer. Shares are taking a hit despite a quarterly beat and some classically conservative guidance. Future's still in the green, though. Squawk on the streets back in a moment. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Deer, among the biggest pre-market losers on the S&P 500 right now, down 5% pre-market. The company issuing fiscal 2024 guidance that came in below the street consensus, saying it sees a 10% decline across all of its businesses. That news overshadowing what was better than expected fourth quarter results, guys. The prices of key goods like soybeans are down and farm incomes, David, which is a key key sort of metric for deer and how much the farmers are going to be willing to spend, according to the US, USDA, are down 2023 from 2022. Yeah, I mean, they cited a return to mid-cycle sales levels. And again, as you point out, that outlook now uh, calling for what is a significant drop in, in profitability, so to speak, at least, certainly below what had been anticipated by the analysts who follow it. But did they give us any more detail than that, Sarah, in terms of what is behind that it's the agricultural sales cycle. levels. Yeah. I mean, agricultural equipment set to fall 10 to 15 percent in the coming year, five to 10 percent drop in smaller equipment. Not as bad, I think, for the construction sector, mm -hmm. but it's the agriculture. That income expected to be 141 billion this year. Last year it was 183 billion. Corn prices are down 30 percent from the last year. That impacts deer. Yeah, having an impact on cat as well, even though they do, you know, again, cat may be more associated with the construction side. Agco is one to watch, too. Yeah. Um, very similar market values, by the way, on those two. Caterpillar a bit larger than deer, but $110 billion, $125 billion for Caterpillar. Uh, but certainly sizable companies, and we are seeing that decline as well as you see in cat. Not, shows, not what we saw in deer. Though. It shows the unevenness of, of all end markets right now. You know, you can't necessarily take this, and we, 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 have, we have retailers to get through, but you can't glean much about the overall economy. You can glean something about the agriculture economy and the prospects there. But, but Carl, the data continues to come in. Durable goods were soft. Jobless claims, though, were better. We're lower than initially expected. So it's not like an all-out collapse. <laughs> <laughs> no. And Deer, uh, having covered them back in the day at the Journal, they their guidance is always conservative. But if you look at a chart of Deer versus Cat year-to-date, uh, it's obvious that uh, which company is more exposed to construction and a beneficiary of some of the stimulus we're getting. And that is that is Caterpillar, which is hanging on to gains for the year. But uh, Deer is definitely uh, in the red year-to-date. We'll watch that. Um, but your point about the larger economy yeah. is pretty interesting. I was just making note of some of the headlines in the last, say, 24 hours. Gas prices, of course, uh, down. Goldman's note about household net worth to disposable income ratio, all-time high. Uh, the Journal today with a piece about American shoppers having, quote, plenty of dry powder left. Some of the more encouraging things that we have going. Thanksgiving uh, food prices are down, yeah. right? From, from at least turkey prices are down in deflation compared to last year. I think sweet potato prices are up. 
And with that, let's get the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange. With the big board, it is Macy's celebrating the 97th Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Of course, you can watch that on NBC and Peacock tomorrow morning, beginning at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. At the NASDAQ, it's the New York City Department of Small Business Services kicking off the holiday shopping season. So we'll see what leads. I mean, we've talked for days about how important NVIDIA's print was going to be. We got past it. NVIDIA shares a little bit unchanged, although they were down. People were saying it's not an all-out perfect report after hours, although it was a, it was a very good report. It was a beat and a raise, and it showed remarkable better. strength. I guess for a stock, though, that's up more than 200% year-to-date for the S&P's best performer. A lot of that good news is baked in there. You, that, that seems to be what the market is saying at this point. But again, to your point, Sarah, I mean, you can't really ask for a better quarter. The growth of this company has been nothing short of just uh, extraordinary, even beyond sort of anything that might have been anticipated. Again, given how leveraged it is into these end markets that use its chips to drive the, uh, the computing power needed for these large language models that drive generative AI, uh, whether it is ChatGPT or BARD, or Anthropic, uh, and on from there. You need NVIDIA. Although it's the China, I mean, if you had to pick apart one thing, yeah. it's, it's the fact that they warned that the China restrictions will start to impact the company in the next quarter. 20 to 25 percent of data sales, data center sales come from China. They're trying to work around it and try to meet the, obviously, the Commerce Department guidelines, but that's going to hurt. It was expected, but they, they, did, they did mention that, if you want to give one, one yeah. reason. There are other earnings movers, though, to hit, you know, not as big as NVIDIA, but Urban Outfitters is one. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to figure out what the message is from retailers. I mean, Urban Outfitters is a tale of many, many different brands. They've got Anthropology, they've got Free People, and both of those brands are doing very well, having nice comp store growth. But the, the underlying Urban Outfitters brand comps are very weak, down 14 percent. Um, and there's some issues with that brand. I think certainly relative to free people, 22.5% comp. So uneven performance there. And Citigroup says unless you can have some stabilization in the key UO brand, Urban Outfitters brand, it's going to be hard to see where sales growth goes from here. Yeah, Anthropology uh, up 13, but Urban, the, the namesake brand, down 14. Not great. Uh, as for uh, Nordstrom, uh, there was a revenue miss. Uh, comps at Nordstrom uh, down almost 10. Rack was down only two. Uh, so some are applauding their strategy of diversifying uh, on a pricing spectrum, but that is going to be... Uh, they do reiterate the guide at the midpoint. Uh, they do narrow the full-year range, uh, but that's going to be one to watch as well. Yeah, the, the fact Nordstrom. that they reiterate it is interesting just because Best Buy and Kohl's both trim the, the annual sales guidance, but a lot of cautious commentary in that Nordstrom report about the overall macro environment. I think when it comes to Rack, they've, they've done a good job, according to the analysts, trying to keep prices from not falling too too far and also bring in more styles and designers that are that are trendier. We, we've got some sound from Eric Nordstrom, the CEO, on the call last night. Here's what he says. Looking ahead, the absolute level of cost savings will stabilize as we've now been focused on this priority for over a year. However, we'll continue to seek out additional efficiencies in flow and improve productivity through inventory management initiatives. Our efforts to improve our supply chain have also contributed to increased productivity and store fulfillment for online orders at the Nordstrom banner and better inventory positioning and flow across the company. Some of the strategic priorities there, Nordstrom shares down 5%, largely on that, that sales miss. It's been a mixed bag 
for retail this, this season. I think it's mostly better quarters, worse outlooks is the theme. Right. Um, did want to mention uh, a stock that we followed closely. Jim and I talked a lot about it yesterday. Of course, VMware, not going to trade. It's done. Deal's closed. Uh, Broadcom owns it. One thing to keep in mind, though, is potential sales of Broadcom because you have two very large shareholders of VMware who've now received, uh, given what we assume was their election, a lot of stock. And they are Silver Lake. Let's not put up VMware, guys. That's over and done with. Gone. Goodbye. Let's put up Broadcom. Uh, you have Silver Lake and you have uh, Michael Dell. Michael Dell owned a lot of VMware. Uh, and, you know, the question there is, in particular with Silver Lake, what I'm hearing is the expectation is when they get the stock, which might be Monday when, you, you know, you can actually, they'll probably sell a lot of it. Um, what do I got them down here? I mean, as much as $5 billion potentially, at least is what they received. 42 million shares, 0.1313. Anyway, something to keep in mind when it comes to Broadcom, of course, which now owns VMware. What does Silver Lake and Michael Dell do? Of course, they were very significant holders of that company's shares, uh, which has now been sold in that cash and stock deal that finally got approval from the antitrust regulators in China that had been uh, quite some time in coming. But uh, to the relief of many of the so-called risk arbitrageurs, it did finally come. They were locked in their election for weeks in terms of cash and stock, and so we're very nervous about that, as you might expect. Uh, travel names are outperforming at the Open. The uh, top gainers at the Open were uh, Norwegian, followed by United, Delta, uh, American, uh, Royal Caribbean, and Carnival. Uh, part of that is going to be the fact that it's likely to be one of the busiest, obviously, maybe the busiest Thanksgiving Day holiday in several years, but also the decline in oil, to which a lot of these players are heavily leveraged. Yeah, you mentioned this earlier. It's worth worth pausing on this as well. What 331 was Monday's average national gas price. That was significantly less than a month ago. I think 25 cents less than a month ago. 36 cents less than Thanksgiving last year. So if we hit 325 by Thursday, that's the cheapest Thanksgiving gas price since 2020. Remember what was happening in 2020 when oil prices were cratering over, over COVID. Below $3 a gallon in, in 11 southern and midwestern states. So yeah, some relief, I would say, for gas prices. Helps with the holiday travel, driving and flying, although the weather is kind of iffy. And then check out uh, gasoline unleaded futures, RBOB as we like to call it. That will imply a further decline, and that's going to tie into... CPI, at least headline. Uh, I think it was BMO earlier in the week that said we might wind up with the lowest back-to-back headline CPI prints since COVID. Good news, although you got to look at core, which shelter's been the, the problem there when it comes to rent and, and home prices and something the Fed is watching carefully. Just another mover to pull up. Uh, HP, I thought this was going to be a decliner oh, yeah. today. It looks like it's actually doing well after earnings. Revenue was a miss, down 6%, but earnings were a beat. And there was some constructive commentary about the rebound of the, the PC market. Enrique Loris was on with Jim last night. I think we have that soundbite about what he said about the, the overall market and what they're seeing. Do we have that? We really think that the PC market has started to recover. The second half was stronger than the first half, and we had expected the market to grow in 24 compared to 23. There you go. Maybe perhaps one of the reasons you're seeing the turnaround in the stock today. I also talked about building AI into, into PCs and what kind of promise that holds for the future for HP. Not, not having an impact yet, but down the road. Yeah, he did say 
Uh, it's not like consumers are going to immediately shift into AI PCs, but maybe some slight uh, what are AI PCs? category penetration in, in 24 and, and more in 25. Yeah, an AI PC would talk to you, Sarah, just yeah. tell you everything you need to do. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, my, my computer can talk to me now, but it's... Right, it'll, it'll more, be much better, though. It'll talk, it'll All talk, the Thanksgiving recipes. It'll talk <laughs> much prettier. <laughs> I, like, I like a computer that talks pretty. Yeah. Reminds me of the book, of course. Yes. David Sedaris book. Um, talk, me talk pretty. Correct. Yeah. One day. David Sedaris. Yeah. Uh, we're doing my show. If we were doing my show called Seven Stocks, we'd be talking <laughs> a lot about, in fact, those seven stocks this morning because five of the biggest are up uh, rather nicely. Amazon's up 2.3%. Apple's up over a percent. Meta, Microsoft, they're up. And you can see the index there up 1.2%. I mean, Sarah, I don't, you know, mm -hmm. Microsoft, I could give you some reasons. Amazon, perhaps some bounce back from, from yesterday uh, when Bezos, as I reported, may have been in there selling some stock. Although, again, only a, you know, 10, 15% of the overall no, volume, perhaps. But um, the 10-year, yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to go to. 438. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the reason. I wanted, that's why I wanted Yeah, we to broke below 440 on the 10-year. You know, it, it was looking dicey after the minutes were released from the last Fed meeting, and they were... They were interpreted to, you know, the Fed is sticking to its resolve on fighting inflation, but then I think the, <laughs> then, it, then it became clear that they're stale, right? Since, that, since those Fed minutes, we got a weaker CPI report, we got a weaker jobs report, and so the buying resumed of treasuries, and now we are, Man. you know, making lows that we haven't seen since September, racing that whole October run-up. Remember when everyone was freaking out about those higher yields? Yeah, we were talking about it every day. We, we clipped 5%, now here we are, what? 60 basis points below. It's stimulative. It's helpful. I don't know how much the Fed is going to be happy seeing it. Already we've heard some pushback from certainly Fed speakers, but Christine Lagarde and the ECB, for instance, talking a little bit tougher yesterday saying, you know, we, we're not necessarily sure our work is done. We have to see the market because the problem is if, these, if we continue to see lower yields and a weaker dollar and strong stocks, that could fight them on the progress. And inflation is still too high for comfort in these central banks. But the market's thinking is it's on a, a one-way ticket lower and it's on a good glide path lower. And so that's why the market's been feeling good about the fact that there are no more hikes. Yeah, uh, NASDAQ 100, uh, 16,000, almost 100. That's gonna be a fresh 22-month high. A lot of that, of course, is gonna be due to Apple, which got some note yesterday as Tim Cook went on Dua Lipa's podcast, yeah. talked about uh, his personal life and, and definitely the granular succession plan that is in place at Apple. Take a listen. We're a, uh, a company that believes in working on succession plans. And so we have very detailed succession plans. Okay. And because something that's unpredictable can always happen, I can step off the wrong curb tomorrow. And uh, hopefully that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, hopefully I that doesn't happen. I pray that it doesn't. Yeah, no. Are you able to say who's in line for succession? Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> but, I, but I would say I, my job is to prepare several people for right. the ability to succeed. And I really want the person to come from within Apple Mm -hmm. the next CEO. And so that's my role is to make sure that there's several for the board to pick from. Speaking of uh, Apple and succession, Berkshire's the other story on that front where Buffett writes this letter uh, giving more shares to uh, four different charities, but does write at age 93, I feel good, uh, but fully realize I'm playing in extra innings. Um, we have the right CEO to succeed me 
and Greg Abel. I, I found the Apple comments more interesting, you know, on, with Tim Cook because he doesn't talk about it very much. No. And, and, and we did get a little insight there that he's thinking internally yes. for Apple's next successor and that there are a number of people internally that he would be grooming. Right. I mean, at the behest of the board, of course, sure. which, as I say so many times, is probably the number one responsibility of a board of directors to effectively uh, uh, conduct a succession process and pick properly. Of course, it's amazing how often they fail, words mm -hmm. fail at that. But in this case, I, I agree with you, Sarah, the fact that he did seem to identify his desire and the board's perhaps to be able to have a choice of people, all of whom work at Apple, uh, is interesting. Not that he's going anywhere. And of course, you know, you can't forget the success that he's had in following one of the most, if not the most single re most revered members of the the business world in, in our lifetime, uh, Steve Jobs, and yet look what they've been able to accomplish under under Tim Cook. Um, does everybody have a pod show now? Every single person? Podcast? Pod, whatever this is called. I mean, yeah. I'm, I was going to say, maybe we need to have a podcast so we can interview Tim Cook, because if he's going to go on with Dua Somehow, Lipa. it's not enough, right? You can't have a TV show, but <laughs> right. maybe if you can have a cool studio on with Apple. some comfortable chairs. Yeah, that would help. Do yeah. you know who Dua Lipa is? Well, I do now. Oh, okay. I do now. <laughs> Because our, our executive producer, Todd Bonin, did play some of her music for me this morning you to make sure I knew. you got to get to Jingle knew. Ball. Like, but I, I did know. know the songs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, her songs you would know, I did for know. sure. Um, the <laughs> Why does she have a pod show? Well, she's clearly a good interviewer. She's it's it's called direct-to-consumer. Yeah. All right, Splinterization thanks. of media. Just, just, yeah, I guess i got to catch up to this kind of stuff. Uh, it's Fine. interesting. I mean, thinking about Apple and succession, it's an issue, that obviously, that has confounded Disney uh, last couple of years. We did get some ratings, David, for Monday Night Football, uh, KC versus Philly. 29 million viewers will be the largest television audience of the year. Amazing. We've talked often about the fact that basically every single broadcast of the National Football League will be amongst the highest of any given week and or month. 18 of the 20 largest, highest uh, ratings broadcast for the year. This is the product. The NFL is the product, and of course it does, you know, ESPN it brings you to, and, uh, and what they pay for it, and what others pay for it, and it's a must-have, um, and it's working. Nothing else seems to be working when it comes to uh, the linear cable ecosystem. Well, but what's so is. impressive about those numbers is Taylor Swift wasn't even at the game. She was in Brazil for her concert. I would have thought, you know, record if she were watching, right? Didn't the Chiefs lose? The Chiefs lost, yeah. and there are those who believe that Travis Kelsey dropped one at the end there that, you know, the might statistics, have caught if she they had don't been lie. there. Well, her he parents plays were better when she's in house. And his, yeah. And, you know, they were going to meet the parents, but she got delayed in Brazil, you know, because of the hot weather there. Of course. Are you up on this? The hot weather in Brazil. <laughs> the hot weather I mean, I'm up on some no things. I can talk football with you if you'd like. Okay. Well, this is the extent of me talking football. I know it is. And this actually goes on in my house, too, especially with, with my 18-year-old <laughs> daughter. She brings me up to date on the whole other side of it. Yeah. It's, it's part of it now. Yeah, you know? totally. As uh, we're contemplating that, let's watch the markets here. 45.66 uh, is going to be a fresh 52-week high on the spies, at least. Thanks, Mike. Uh, VIX below 13, and then of course watch bonds. We did get down to 4369. That was the lowest since September 20. Got a brief bounce here as some of those claims came in, came in low at 209K. We'll be right back. Near record numbers of passengers expected to take to the skies today for Thanksgiving holiday travel. Our Phil LeBeau is at a Chicago's O'Hare airport with a look at how the industry is handling the big rush. Morning, Phil. 
Uh, it's been a smooth morning so far, Carl, and that's the good news. When you look at the total number of people who are flying over the 12 days, going back before Thanksgiving a couple of days ago, all the way through next Tuesday, 30 million people, 2.7 million, are expected to fly today. That's according to the TSA. Busiest day will be Sunday, as it always is. The TSA also says we should expect long lines. Even the pre-check lines are long. In fact, I was just looking at the one here at O'Hare. It's had uh, some pretty lengthy waits for a while, but nothing outrageous. And the FAA is adi opening additional airspace both over the continental U.S. as well as over the ocean along the East Coast in order to help with the traffic flow. So there's less congestion out there. More than 49,000 flights today. That's an increase of almost 3% compared to last year. And when you look at the number of people who are being flown, it's now at pre-pandemic levels. It's above that. So the airlines, this is the TSA, they're screening more than 2.34 million people every single day this year. And of course, that's going to surge during Thanksgiving when so many people are flying. You would think all of this increased demand would be good news for the airline stocks. Ugh, unfortunately, it hasn't been good news. They are all trading near their lows of the year, though they're all getting a bit of a bump within the last couple of weeks. What's the problem? Higher costs along with tighter margins. Those two have been a double whammy that have made a lot of people guys say, you know what? I'm good on the airlines right now. The question is, what's the catalyst? We typically see a catalyst going into the holiday season. That's not the case this year. And then, of course, we know that right after the holidays, that first quarter, guys, that's a slow one for the airlines historically. And most people believe we've seen a lot of the pent-up demand that has, has been in the market. That's played out. We'll see what happens with these stocks you know, over the next couple of months. Uh, Phil, the capacity problems and the shortage problems, the, like when we would go to the gate and have to wait for a pilot to show up because they didn't have one, has all that been dealt with, with the, yeah. with the increased demand level still high? For the most part. For the most part. Look, I, I'm going to say that now, and Sarah, you're going to take a trip, and you're going to be like, I was there, <laughs> and the pilot didn't show up, or they didn't have enough pilots. Look, is there a shortage of pilots overall? Could the industry use more pilots? Yes. But we're not seeing the acute shortages that we saw let's say, nine months to 15 months ago. A lot of that has changed. Airlines have hired a lot of pilots within the last couple of years. Now, the regional jet operators, they're suffering because of that, because a lot of those pilots, they accrued enough hours, they could be brought up and hired by the full-line airlines, and that's why they've been able to beef up their, air, uh, their pilot ranks. But no doubt, it's still a tight market overall. It's not as bad as it was, but, it, you know, it, would they like to have more pilots? Sure, they would. Uh, the other headline, uh, Phil, this morning out of the Journal is about United. You are at O'Hare uh, considering letting advertisers yep. target customers uh, based on passenger information. This might show up in your app or even on an in-flight screen. Kind of interesting to watch these carriers explore alternate sources of revenue. How do you get that, uh, that extra revenue, Carl? That's what this is all about. And think about all the data that the airlines collect. Now, we've talked about this with not just air, airlines or, or other industries. How do you use that data without making people feel like they're being violated? Like, look, Big Brother's watching every single thing that I do. That's going to be the real challenge here. But if the airlines can target customers, boy, I, I could see a huge opportunity for there in terms of ancillary revenue. 
Phil, thanks. Uh, busy weekend ahead. That's our Phil LeBeau at O'Hare today. Uh, when we return, more on NVIDIA's quarterly beat and Sam Altman returning to OpenAI with S&P holding 45.50. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.